Hi, my name's David Pace. And I'm Alex Berlick. And this is Pace Yourself, University of Utah College of Science podcast on wellness. So here we are. Today we're going to talk about social wellness. Uh, and so I'm going to start out, as we usually do, with a definition. And the definition of social wellness that I've come up with or that I've pulled together means to develop a sense of connection, belonging, and well developed and a well-developed support system. So uh, I think we should start out with um, something that I think that's going on on the macro scale, which is that we're coming out of a pandemic, which was pretty trying for a lot of us. Um, and I don't even think we knew how trying it was. And so let's talk a little bit about loneliness and, and the disconnection that's happened since um, we all went into lockdown. And, and now we're actually trying to navigate that because we don't even know what the future holds, but there has been a disconnection going on and a sense of loneliness, I think, on the macro level. Absolutely. And I love that you frame that way to start, David, because there's a lot of different areas, maybe even all of the areas of wellness were tested and tried through the pandemic. And we went through this collective traumatic experience that nobody asked for or ever expected they might experience in their life. And I remember at one point seeing a graph about the different areas of wellness and how they like peaked and spiked throughout timescales of the pandemic. And the one that came later in, in the pandemic was this social piece. There was this like really long tail of social wellness kind of being fragmented from lockdown and then really struggling in it to be rebuilt. And this actually prompted the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, to craft this very long dossier titled The Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation hmm. in Our Country. And I think that you know, just kind of like we, we can't ignore what's going on. So we need to talk about like the rise in what he calls diseases of despair, which are anxiety and depression and loneliness and, you know, accidental death from overdose. Like all of these are at a place that have created this mental health crisis that is very widespread. And the report goes so far as to say that the effects of loneliness are like smoking 15 cigarettes a day, which was just totally. Holy cow. Really? I, yeah. It's, and so this is something that's kind of like invisible. Right. And so hopefully today we can talk about, you know, maybe some of the areas and some of the populations that are really affected. But at the end of the day, like we're social creatures. And so we all have been affected by this and maybe in ways that, as you say, like that we're still just beginning to understand. So hopefully we can give people some ideas of ways to start to, rebuild connection and rebuild community. And so for you, when you think about like connection and community as it relates to social well-being, where do you usually start? Well, it makes me wonder about what connection is and what family means. Um, really what's happened for me the last 20 years of my life is that my family of birth has become Come less important to me. Um, that's not my family in a sense now. Um, and I've had to, my wife and I together have had to create our own community. And I think that this happened during the pandemic as well on any number of levels. I mean, uh, we suddenly found new communities online, for example, and those communities were critical. They were absolutely vital to keeping us you know, in a sense connected. So, um, you know, I, I, I guess whenever I 
whenever I'm thinking about social connection, I think first about the terminology that I'm using because we can get locked into notions about, for example, what family is, is that just blood relations? Well, um, for many populations in this country, refugees, for example, um, people who have been discriminated against. And, um, uh, I, I think of, you know, when I was growing up in the coming of age in the eighties, the gay community was forming their own community. And that was really interesting to watch because a lot of their families were ambivalent at best at their, um, professed lifestyle. And I think that that is happening a lot in our very fragmented world is that people, it's kind of like cable t- TV, you know, you pick the cable TV ch- channel that you, that, that reflects you and that, um, you can relate to. And sometimes that's bad because then you're not, <laughs> you're, you're not hearing any information from the other side or from other communities, but, um, yeah, it's kind of followed that model. I think the cable TV model, which of course is not doing very well right now with streaming, but uh, it's, it's it's kind of an interesting way to look at how we connect. Um, we certainly connect through social media, and like I say, that was that was critical during the pandemic, and I was very grateful for it. Totally. As was my wife. Totally, I think that you know you make you draw a really good like you know macro point about the change in social dynamics that have taken place over like maybe the past like 50 years but that have been you know escalated since the pandemic and really since the introduction of the iPhone and social media and information technology on a mass scale over the past 15 years and something that i think that we used to default to was we used to live in like small tribes and groups and we had our community, our family and you know, whether or not we liked them or got along or had common interests or not, like we were kind of stuck together more or less. And and so now we're on the opposite end of that spectrum. Like we have ultimate choice. (laughs) We have, you know, online communities, in-person communities, but sometimes that can be like really overwhelming because we can choose any which way. How do you possibly choose? And one of the first places I think that I think about starting when rebuilding connection and community in my life is setting like intentional time carved out in my day to just get to know people that I'm interested in better, not letting it be like the default, like it used to, and really thinking like, okay, like what are some ways in which I can be intentional about this? And I love how you, you said that you and your wife really started to like have this blossom for you during the pandemic. What were some of the ways that you went about creating connection or engaging with these communities that were, were interesting to you? How did you start doing that? Well, it was, we were forced to do it for one thing. So, um, but even, even when we were forced to go online, um, we had to also make, um, like you say, intentional decisions about, actually we had to do an inventory quite frankly of who our friends were and who our family was and, um, really make appointments to talk to people. And what was interesting is that our, our friend base, our community actually expanded, um, in a curious way, which would not have happened without the internet. So we were talking to people in England, you know, a friends, high school friends from my wife's, uh, um, side of the family that, um, we hadn't talked to at any length because they lived in England until we got online. So we would spend like an hour with these folks, you know, living in Suffolk County or, um, 
So, I mean, I, th- I think the point for us was that um, we also saw friends that we didn't, um, didn't know we might have, like, for example, people in our own neighborhood. I mean, I lived in New York for a while and the value of living in New York city was that you had a lot of contact with people all the time. You couldn't get away from it. Um, and so I found that, you know, our next door neighbors, we became really close in terms of, you know, what they were doing and how they were coping and how their kids were doing. And because they were there, they were, and, and we could meet each other outside six feet apart, of course. And, yeah. So that's, that's how we managed through it. Um, but I, I, and I actually, I want to know how you did it as well, because I think that there was uh, some residual effects to, um, to not having those standard contacts, even with the grocery store people, you know, or the mail mailman or the mail woman, um, that we are still suffering from a little bit. We're finding that we, we, now that we are reintegrating that we have to really be intentional about the friendships that we want to keep up with in person. It's a different animal. I, I don't know. How did you guys do it? Yeah. I, you, you did it right after you moved here, right? Isn't that what the, I had been here for about three years, but oh, my wife had, had only okay. been here for about a year. Um, suddenly she's faced with the pandemic in a new space, right? Yeah. We were fortunate that we had roommates at the time, very good friends of ours, um, who were the godparents of their children. Um, and you know, there's a couple of things that you're saying that, you know, helped us develop deeper relationships with those individuals, but others in our community as well. And that's the idea of like common interests is, is one thing I think. The other though is this way of showing up in relationship and, um, and I want to talk briefly about both of those. So when I think about interests, like I have different groups or different individuals in my life that help me to explore different things I'm interested in. So like I have a group of people that I like to ski with. I have different people that I like to see live music with. I have others that will sit down and have really deep philosophical questions and discussions with me. I have others that I can talk about books I'm reading with or others that I I talk about running with. So I will think of this, uh, this phrase sometimes like don't go to the hardware store for milk. (laughs) Like no one would ever do that. Right. Or though maybe there's a hardware store that has milk out there. That's going to make me eat my words. But the point (laughs) is, is there are certain people in our lives that maybe we go to for social connection in certain areas that are not actually the best match. Like there are gentlemen that I love to ski with that I would never and have never really had deep philosophical conversations with. They're not, they're wonderful people to do one thing with. They're not great to do something else with. Um, so the, so that's the first area is just like thinking about like the structure and, and the interests that we, we have. And then the other is how we show up in relationship. And I think that this is the challenging part that we're still learning maybe as like a muscle to re-strengthen after the pandemic is it, it takes risk and putting yourself out there and being vulnerable and and daring to go first in relationship to really develop that deep, like bond that we are all like hardwired for. Um, and I think that that's kind of the foundation, but that's also kind of the, the tricky or the scary part about developing like deeper relationships and social connections. 
And yet it's, it's absolutely critical. I mean, Brene Brown, who we've quoted before is, says that it's neurobiologically in there. That's how, like you say, as we, how we're wired, that's why we're here is to connect. So my question for you is what causes disconnection other than the pandemic? What's causing it now? So when I was going through and, and just doing some research on the Surgeon General's um, epidemic of loneliness and isolation, mm-hmm. he talks a lot in there about social media, actually, um, and how particularly in the age range of like 15 to 24 right now, this cohort of, of beautiful young souls are engaging 70% less in person than at, you know, different times in the past few decades. Like that's a massive reduction and they have these four graphs. And if anybody is interested in checking this out, it's, it's really a robust resource to help you understand like what's going on socially. They have these four charts and they're showing decreases in interaction with different groups. Mm -hmm. And one of them stood out to me immediately. The friend, the time with friends over the past like 10 years just plummets. It falls off in chart. You're talking person to person. Yeah. Spending young people spending time with their friends. Like that time has just plummeted. And that's a really important like age to be engaging with your friends, to be learning and exploring the world more. Um, and so getting into trouble, toilet papering your neighbor's house, all of that is just incredibly important part of our social. I mean, I'm, I'm just remember, remembering growing up in the seventies, that was just hours and hours and hours with people. Yeah. And and those are just times that like you, you have an opportunity to, you know, push your boundaries, to explore, to like learn about each other. I think like some of the people I have the most deep relationships with in my life are the people that I've gone through the hardest challenges with. And this can look really differently, right? It could be people that I've gone on backcountry ski trips with, it could be people that I've like talked to about challenges in my life. It could be people that I've helped through other challenges or like we have some really good friends who just moved to Utah. Mm-hmm. And like I moved here, you know, seven years ago now. I, I know what it's like to move all the way across the country and it's really not easy, but I can already see that we're developing a closer bond. And, uh, and so it's those opportunities to learn and grow together. And I want to come back to your question, like what gets in the way of this? Okay. Like really like that screen time, that phone time, I I think really is like one of the most, um, the biggest hurdles for us to engage with intentionally in this report. They talked about how people that use social media for two hours or more a day were 50% more likely to report feeling lonely Mm. than people who use social media 30 minutes or less. So we're really talking about the shadow side of social media because we were earlier talking about how it connected us all in, in new ways, but there's a, there's a flip side to it. Yeah. And, and you know, the pandemic was something that was novel, right? The word novel is probably used a million times and it was a novel experience for all of us. And that technology, I mean, I'd never used Zoom before the pandemic. And I can vividly remember sitting in my room with my wife and like 20 other friends from college, just like checking in on each other, you know, making sure the world wasn't flipped upside down because it sure felt like it. But as time has gone on and things have, you know, slowly, you know, open and grown and change. I think we need to remember that we are social beings at our nature and we've, you know, have always been and lived in close proximity in small tribes. And there haven't been like real 
biological changes in human beings in like 50,000 years. 50,000. Yeah. We need to be in social contact with one another in person. We have mirror neurons that are literally built for this. And so, um, yeah, it's, it is a, it is a wonderful tool in many ways, but we have to use it as a tool. Um, like we don't carry a hammer around all day long, right? Cause everything's not a nail in the same way that like social media is useful. It also can be a real barrier to actual genuine vulnerable social connection, I think. Yeah. And when your hammer is the only tool you've got, you're going to just pound everything, right? So you need more than one tool, something you, like that. Something like that. So, you know, there's other aspects here and some of the, the tools that we were talking about were strategies actually from the NIH that they're sharing with, with people across a wide swath of communities to think about rebuilding social connection. Um, and one of those, David, was developing healthy boundaries, Tell me a little bit about how that's shown up for you and ways in which you found that useful in your life. Well, um, yeah, because there's, a, I mean, there's the shadow side to everything, I guess. Um, and connecting has its own risks. Um, one of those is if you don't have proper boundaries and you've got a toxic individual in your life, you're going to be troubled by that. Um, I'm reminded of a quote from my, the poet Maya Angelou. Um, let's see if I can get this right. When someone shows you who they are the first time, believe them. And so people are going to say and perform whatever they're going to say and perform. And that's very different than how they behave. And I think that um, there's, I don't know, maybe it is media, but um, we have I have the tendency to believe what I want to believe about somebody, you know? And so I'm, I'm willing to give them one chance, two chances, 532 chances before <laughs> I finally figure out that they're bad for me or that I need to, not that they're bad for me and I need to jettison them, but that I have to have a really strong boundary that um, I'm not willing to move mm -hmm. for them. So, yeah, I mean, um, I think it's the phrase is heaven is other people. Hell is other people too. <laughs> and so you have to kind of keep that in mind. Um, so yeah, in terms of, um, my own, um, ability to draw boundaries, I, I'm a classic codependent. I'll, I'll admit it. I actually go to a support group for that very reason. Um, because I inappropriately, uh, attempt to take care of other people in the room. If I'm on a bus and somebody doesn't look happy, I feel responsible for that. You know, I mean, that's being kind of extreme, but that's, that's the classic codependent. So I have to be really careful about that. And I have to keep in mind that connecting can, can be toxic as well. And, um, but I, I think also there's a, a very emotion. We were talking about emotion uh, in the earlier podcast and what ravel, unravels connection, I think, on the emotional level is this this fear of disconnection and, and shame, quite frankly, that you are if somebody finds out who you are, really, they're going to be disgusted by you or find that you're not worthy of connection. And so there's some work that we have to do there as well. And, um, that's definitely an inside job. It's not just about picking up the phone and making a date with somebody. It's about feeling like you are worthy of connection. And, um, one of the biggest problems that happens after someone dies in your life, some close person is that you get very 
possibly depressed. And that can settle in very quickly to some of us who, um, you know, the imposter syndrome, yeah. um, if you will. So I'd like to actually talk a little bit more about that. How do we, um, keep from unraveling our connections by feeling more emotionally health, healthy? Yeah. Well, you know, as a, a people pleaser myself, I can very much relate, you know, to, to what you're sharing and, uh, and vulnerability is scary too. And you have to be vulnerable to be connected, right? You, you do. And so when you think about, you know, imposter syndrome or being vulnerable and, and leaning in, one of the things that I like to, to think about is this kind of like a, a mantra I'm thinking about putting myself out there and developing new relationships with people and cultivating intentionally a social support network is like, do I feel like trusted and supported? And do I see that the person that I'm engaging with really wants the best for me? And I think one of the best ways to do that is like people that celebrate your successes, like people that want to see you be successful, those people are just magnetic in, in our world. And so, um, when we think about being vulnerable, if you, if you think like, Hey, if this person celebrates me for the good things I'm doing, like, that's a really good sign of, of a healthy individual and someone that like, you might be able to develop a healthy relationship with. And you, you talked earlier about, about boundaries. And I think I want to come back to that for a second because, you know, Boundaries with unhealthy people are super important, but you can also like have like boundaries with healthy people as well, Mm -hmm. because something we are talking about with the emotional wellness piece was you have to be a friend to yourself first. And that looks like protecting your time and making sure you're taking care of yourself so you can extend yourself to others. And one of the tools for people that are maybe like, okay, David and Alex, I know I need to say no, but I don't know how to do it is there's two tricks that I use. One, I often won't say the word no. <laughs> if someone's like, Hey, do you want to grab, you know, you know, drinks or do you want to like come out with some of us after work and be like, you know what? I'd love to, but I've got this commitment tonight to my wife or to my friends. I'd love to join you next time. I didn't use the word no at all. Right. I was like, I would love to, but it's not going to happen today. Mm-hmm. The other, other thing that I use is remembering to separate the no from the individual. So saying no to an experience or an opportunity or time is not personal. It's not saying no to you, David. It's saying no to this time together with remembering and keeping in mind that there is a yes in the future. So those are two things that I think um, I, those are tools that I like to bring to my mind as like mantras for developing healthy social connections. Yeah. To piggyback on that, as we close out here, I think that with really aggressive people, sometimes no is a complete answer. You should not feel obligated to explain yourself. And sometimes I've had to do that and that's hard. It's really hard. It's much better to be able to do, um, you know, keep the, keep the, keep it civil, if you will, because it feels uncivil to say no. Having said that, yes is also a complete sentence. So let's all say yes as often as we can and no when needed. Yes, it is. And so, you know, like we've done with many of these other episodes, I think we like to, you know, have a wide ranging application of like tools and ideas, but I always like to boil it down to like, if you take nothing else from this, like if, if you're still having a challenge of strengthening your ability to create strong social connections. I think there, I would say a few things. One is just continue to take small steps every day. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, maybe it's just asking somebody in passing 
a little bit more than how's your day going or the reverse is true. And I love to do this with people when they ask, how are you doing? I love to actually tell them <laughs> and, and, and maybe what like concept. in a shortened frame, but I don't just say good. I actually tell them like, you know what? I'm, I'm feeling a little this today. I'm feeling great. Or I'm feeling a little, little fried. So taking small steps in conversation. But if you're thinking of like developing the skills, like the social skills, and these are skills. So for people that might be more introverted, which I actually happen to be one of them, I might be social, but I'm actually quite introverted. These are skills to develop. And those skills look like being curious, list, actually listening deeply, not just listening to respond. Uh, a magic trick is like asking open-ended questions. So like who, what, where, those questions will elicit a lot of information and people love to talk about themselves. And the final thing is really, I think people that are, are ready to take the next step is like, is risk sharing a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. And like Brene Brown says, and I, we like to quote her on occasion, vulnerability, which is what's keeping us from connecting the fear of vulnerability is not a weakness, but it is our greatest measure of courage in the end. So do you have anything else to say to sign off here? You know, in the end, we, we really do need each other. <laughs> yeah, we do. When I find myself, you know, confused or maybe not feeling great about the world around me, I, I sometimes just come back to what we were talking about in emotional wellness. It's just like remembering to be kind because everyone is fighting a battle that we don't know what it looks like on their internal world or, you know, in so many different ways. But at the end of the day too, like, what are we doing here on this planet to get all existential, right? Like we're all here together and, and we really need one another to, to figure it out and to steward a better future that our hearts know is possible and reconnecting with one another with those, those things in mind. Um, I think it's just the, the basic levels of human love and kindness. Yeah. I think you're right. It's not only neurobiological, but it's, let's say it, it's also a spiritual practice that we do every day. So nicely done. I hope you like me today because I like you. Always a pleasure, David. All right. We'll talk to you next time. Take care.